We uh, took some time to go through the book of Ruth, if you were with us uh, through the Christmas season. Uh, and last week, Pastor Justin was able to uh, preach and, and tell us and show us through God's word about what true worship really looks like and how we can embrace that for ourselves. And now we find ourselves back to the book of Judges. Uh, we didn't abandon Judges, although the temptation may have been there. Um, and in a moment, I'll talk about that a little bit. You do know that Judges so far has been a very um, tough book. It's been depressing at points, it's been hard to take, it's been hard to watch the Israelites do certain things, and honestly has been in a lot of ways and could be very discouraging. Now we've also looked at very many encouraging things, how the grace of God has been there throughout the whole way. But I get ahead of myself, I'll do a little bit of review in a moment, to, but to get us to start thinking about today's sermon and, and what we're going to look at in Judges 17... Um, by way of illustration to start our minds thinking in this direction, I want to talk a little bit about recipes. Uh, recipes are important to life, uh, especially if you're a baker or a cook of any kind. Recipes are there for a reason. But I was just talking to my wife this week and talking about how um, there's a difference between a person who uh, knows how to cook and wants to follow the recipe and someone who just thinks, well, you know what, the recipe is there as a general guideline, but I can kind of do what I want with the recipe to make the food better. I tend to find myself in the second group. I don't follow the recipe so well, uh, and there's been several times that has not worked out very well at all. Uh, we may think that we have the right things in this recipe, and we decide that we can make our own recipe. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're the type that gets out the recipe book and does everything and does it exactly the way it says. There's a reason that the recipe is there. The recipe is there because it's been proven to work. Uh, the recipe is there is because someone who knows everything about what they need to know about that recipe has written it, and they've probably tried it several times. And to listen to the recipe, often you won't go wrong. Now, uh, we had a, a story like this. We used to work at a camp, and we were the, the co-cooks that kind of oversaw the, the kitchen area of the camp. And we had a bunch of teenagers who were working for us at the time, and, and they, uh, it was pizza night. And we decided, you know, surely these teenagers, it's pizza, right? It's a crust that's already made, it's some sauce, it's some cheese, and a few pieces of pepperoni on top. Certainly this can't be ruined, and, and so we just told them. We didn't give them a recipe, we just said, here, make a pizza. And, and our kitchen staff made some pizza for the pizza night. And as they're putting it in, I notice, I look over, and I'm like, man, that looks like a little bit too much cheese. And uh, they all said to me, no, we talked about it. We said that there is, not, there is no such thing as too much cheese on a pizza. And I said, okay, we'll see how this works out. And sure enough, the pizza comes out 20 minutes later, whatever it was, and what we had was not a pizza, but it was a crust with a bowl of soup inside of it. The, the cheese had, there was so much cheese, and I didn't even realize how much cheese they'd put on it, but it was just this soupy, greasy, disgusting mess. It didn't even look like pizza, it didn't taste like pizza, it just was like cheese soup with, in a bread bowl. That's basically what it ended up being. And, and we, we used that as a teaching lesson for them, and we were able to, to get more pizza stuff out and get some pizzas out in time for dinner so the kids weren't totally uh, grossed out. But that was just one example of not following a recipe, and we didn't give them a recipe, but even if we had, their thought of, uh, you can add as much cheese as you want, ruined the pizza. 
Maybe you have a similar story in your life where something has been ruined because of a lack to follow the recipe, or maybe no recipe at all. And you say, what what do recipes have to do with the book of Judges? What do recipes have to do with God's word? Well, I think what we're going to see today in Judges 17, that there are people who decide that the recipe of God's law and God's word that is written is not uh, what they need to follow, but instead that they know better and they will add to a recipe and they will add to a recipe to make their own religion And they really create a religious recipe to say, I want to worship God, but I don't want to do it the way he says. And I I want to worship God, but I don't really want to do it the way he thinks I should do it. I want to do it how I want to do it. And what we'll see is that there are people in Judges chapter 17 that they had some of the right ingredients. They had some of the right thoughts. They even had some of the right intentions to get to the end of what they wanted to do. And they even would use God's name and how they were going to worship him. But what we're going to see is that they added to the recipe. They took away from the recipe. They changed the recipe. And the religion that they created as a result looked nothing like true worship of Yahweh. Nothing at all. And instead of worshiping Yahweh, really by changing the recipe, what they've done is they have gone from worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, the everlasting loving God, to worshiping themselves. And so... As we kind of talk about uh, uh, this idea of a food recipe, that's nothing compared to what Israel is trying to do here. They don't follow God's recipe. They don't follow God's word. They don't follow what God has said. And instead, they just decide that they know better. And they throw things in that should have never been thrown in. And just like the pizza ended up as a soupy mess, their, their worship, their whole religious act that they concoct in this new recipe is nothing short of disgusting. That's really what happens here in Judges chapter 17. But as I said, we are back from our break, so I do want to do a little bit of review. I don't want us to all, we got to get back to where we were in Judges. I know four weeks of Ruth were kind of lighthearted and and really uh, pointing us towards Jesus, towards Christmas, and it was really a great time of uplifting and encouragement, and that's great. I'm afraid that today might look a little different as we come back to the book of Judges. You see, if you thought the rest of Judges that we've seen so far was dark, hard to take, maybe depressing, just wait. And I say that, and it's kind of funny, but it's actually very sad. Because what we're going to see through these next five chapters of Judges is nothing short of just absolute depressing. It gets worse and worse and worse. The sadness and the darkness continues and only gets worse. And then we're going to say, well, what do we get out of this? What does it mean for us? And I'm going to say some of these messages, some of these, some of the scripture we're going to look at is not going to be necessarily the encouraging, uplifting stuff, but it's going to be something that's going to help us to look into the deepest part of us and say, what is wrong with how Israel is operating and how Israel is worshiping God and how does that relate to what I might be doing in my life? And I want to say from the outset, and Justin has said this many times as he's preached, we are not up here first of all, to bring guilt on people. It is not our job to make you feel guilty. The Holy Spirit will take his word and convict you of what he needs to convict you of to make you more and more like Jesus. But our goal is not to make you feel guilty. But as we look at these these scriptures, we're going to see that Israel does some things that I believe that many of us also can fall into the same trap. And so there's going to be some hard things to think about, some hard things to look at, and we will be there. But so far in Judges, as you remember where we've been, 
as the darkness will only get worse, so far what we've seen is a few things. We see, first of all, that Israel has given into compromise, and it is assimilating into the Canaanite culture. Joshua and the Israelites overtook the land. The land was given to them. God said, go and drive everyone else out, and then the land will be yours. And as they go to drive people out, instead they end up becoming more and more like the Canaanite culture. They take on the the sin and the perversion and the false gods that say, we can worship these other gods who will give us better things than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they start to assimilate to Canaanite culture. And as they do that, we've seen the carousel of compromise over and over again. This carousel of compromise that continues to go around and around and around. And it's disobedience to God. It's saying, I'm not going to follow what God says. That turns to discipline because God has to say, you're not listening to me. I'm going to send someone in to send some discipline in your life, which would then lead to deliverance. And that's where we see God's grace flourish. That even though Israel walked away from God, they cheated on God, if you want to put it that way, and they were disobedient, and then we see that they had to be disciplined, and the hardship of that had to come so that God would provide deliverance for his people. And that is the the cycle we've seen as we've gone through the book of Judges. And as I said, through that cycle, we've seen that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I Am, gives undeserved grace and perfect justice throughout all of this. He gives undeserved grace and perfect justice and it all is done to show his glory, to show how good God is despite how bad Israel is. We've seen in that mindset that Yahweh has saved Israel from foreign oppressors many times, but we've also seen as we've looked at these stories that although they might be being saved from foreign oppressors, they're not really being saved from themselves, from their own stupidity, from their own sin, from their own apostasy. And that's where we've been, and we've looked at several different characters through the book of Judges, several different judges that came to bring the deliverance that God had given to Israel, and we ended with Samson. If you remember, Samson was the last judge that we looked at. We looked at many other judges, and Samson is the last in the book of Judges, and we see the worst judge, and yet God still brings some deliverance at the very end, or at least begins to deliver Israel through the life of Samson. But now we find ourselves in chapter 17. And one interesting thing that I didn't realize until this week, as you look at Judges chapter 17, this is not a chronological telling of history. You see, the first 16 chapters were all about what God did through successive leaders, the judges of Israel. But now in chapter 17, uh, we are going to see that the the chronological history of Judges is now over. And actually, we are now going to look at a picture, a behind-the-scenes look in chapter 17 through 21 that kind of gives us what's happening behind all of the other things, all the leaders that come and go, all the problems, all the goodness, all the deliverance that is happening through the first 16 verses, now for the, or chapters, now for the next five chapters, we're going to look at what's going on in the people of Israel behind the scenes. You see, we've been talking about leaders up to this point for the most part, but now we're going to be talking about the people themselves, right down to the family level. And really what many commentators have said, that these five chapters are really an appendix to the book. It's not even really part of the book in the sense of it's not carrying on the chronology, but it is an appendix. It's, it's showing something even deeper and more. We're going to see even more darkness. We're going to see what's happening behind the scenes. 
And in fact, based on several factors, as you look at chapter 17 and 18 and on, and I'm sure Pastor Justin's going to unpack this even more than I will, I'm just going to mention it, we see that these chapters most likely are happening in the very beginning of the chronology of Judges. Most likely even in the time of Othniel, the very first judge. And so we see that from the very beginning of the book of Judges, which is very shortly after Joshua dies, we start to see Israel falling apart almost immediately. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 17. And so we're going to see what happens in chapter 17. And how that affects not only Israel, but also our living today. And so the key thought today... Before I read the chapter, the key thought, and I, I, I do not want to take credit for this. This is actually a thought that came from a sermon I listed, listened to this week called Ten Shekels and a Shirt, and I will actually be quoting from that later. But there was something that was said in that sermon and kind of struck, uh, uh, just struck it hard with me here. And that key thought is this. God should not be a means to an end... He should be the end of all means. Now, if you haven't heard the phrase, means to an end, I'm sure you have, but that's kind of the pragmatism part of this world that says, you know what, you can do whatever you need to do as long as it gets you to the part that you want to happen. It doesn't matter if you cheat, beg, steal, uh, hurt people in the process. As long as you get what you want, it doesn't matter what you do right now. Or it means you do something now because you know it's going to end well for you. So, in other words, what we're saying when we say that God is not to be a means to an end, he should be the end of all means, is that we're saying that God isn't someone who says, if I follow God, if I use God, if I have God, then that means something good will come at the end. And so I'll use God because it gets me to a better place. See, that is the wrong mentality of a Christian, of anyone who believes in God, of Israel. And what we're going to see is they start to say, "I God is no longer the God who loves us, who we worship, who gave us all this land because of his great grace. We no longer are going to trust God. But what we see is the people of Israel fail to worship Yahweh in the way he told them to. He was no longer the God to be worshipped, adored, and trusted. He now became a God to bring them blessings and good fortune. Really what we're going to see in chapter 17 through 21, and especially here in 17, is that Israel has decided that God is like their good luck charm. But you know what, God, they will worship God in name, and they will have what they want of God because it'll get them to something that they want. It'll get them blessing. It'll get them prosperity. He's the one that, oh, look at all the land he gave us. Therefore, that must mean if we make him happy, then he will give us what we want. And then we see this whole thing unfurl here in chapter 17 that is nothing short of disastrous. Really, we've seen the transition now of Israel under the leadership of Joshua being worshipers of God to now they are being users of God. We will see this idea clearly through the narrative from here to the end of the book. And my question as we look through this is not just about how dare Israel do this, but the question I want each of us to ask as we go through this time is how are we like Israel and what should we repent of and how should we be living in light of what we're seeing here in chapter 17? Because my my thought, and I would say this for myself, and I've been convicted very deeply this week, that many times I view my faith in God as a means to an end. God will give me this, God will give me that, I will get heaven if I can only follow God and it's not about him but it becomes about me and instead of making him the end of all my means that everything I do is to point to him instead I say God I I have you so that someday something good will happen to me and I think some of us are there 
that we use God as a means to an end and not the end of all our means. And so I hope as we see Israel do this, we will also consider whether we do this and then how we can move on from here. I've spent a lot of time in introduction and so we're already behind. But I'd like to continue on now and look at chapter 17. But I want this key thought and all this review to be in the background as we look at chapter 17. It's a fairly short chapter in the book of Judges. Please turn with me there. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord, by Yahweh. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh, and from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household goods, gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give to you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and this young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord, that Yahweh will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Okay, so we look at this chapter and think, there's some weird stuff going on, right? So there are some weird things, and we're going to start by looking at a a a domestic disturbance. A domestic disturbance in a family, in the people of Israel, that is just a highlight of what's really going on in the people of Israel. And so we're introduced to this man named Micah. Now Micah, uh, interestingly enough, and as you see what happens in this story, this is incredibly ironic. His name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? Who is like Yahweh? And yet we're going to see through this story that although his name points to Yahweh and points to the fact that there is no one like him, that Micah is going to completely abandon his own name and follow other gods as we go through chapter 17 and on. Just an interesting point there as we look at this. So Micah, uh, we were introduced to him and we see this weird thing has happened in his family. And we see Micah and he comes to and says to his mother, uh, hey, uh, you know, the, the money that was stolen from you, uh, yeah, I heard you utter a curse about it. Uh, and so I just want to let you know that I'm the one who took it. So we see this weird thing happen that right off the bat, we see that Micah stole a fortune from his own mother. Stole a fortune from his own mother. And this is Israel at its worst, right? His, a, a son steals money from his own mother. And this is not just a little bit of money. It's not like he just needed lunch money. So he said, oh, I'm just going to take some out of the, the jar. 
This is 1,100 shekels of silver, and based on some math and some looking at things and comparing it to today, we can assume that it's about five to six million dollars in today's currency. So if you had five or six million dollars and your kids took it from you, that's what we're seeing happen. The mom has lost millions of dollars. She's lost 10, 15 times a year's wage. And so we've seen that now we see this happen, and now Micah says, Mom, I did it. But why? Why? And let's keep in mind that this is not like, it, not only is it a lot of money, but this is a big deal. This is one of the Ten Commandments. God said, Don't, do not steal. And not only does Micah steal, but he steals from his own family. This is, this is disturbing, and that's why it's a domestic disturbance. And so then we see Micah confesses his crime. But it seems, as we look at this, this isn't just a, oh, I feel really bad and I really need to confess because I love my mom. It looks more to me and to many others who read this that um, he's pretty concerned about this curse. So apparently he's pretty superstitious. He, might, he obviously believes in God somewhat to say, I don't really want to be cursed by God, so I'm going to go tell my mom that I'm the one who did it. I'm going to confess because I don't want to get in trouble. Now you say that's kind of weird, but don't all kids do that? Now he's probably not a child, he's probably an adult, but don't we all do that? Especially think about your kids, if you have kids, it's like all of a sudden they'll say they're sorry if there's a punishment coming. Like they don't, they don't really mean it, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, I'll say I'm sorry because uh, uh, I don't want to miss out on this. I think that's what Micah's doing. It's like, mom, I did this, I'm sorry, don't curse me. I heard the curse, I don't want to be cursed. So he confesses his crime in fear of being cursed. So that seems good, but at, on the face, face level, that he confessed something, but it just doesn't, it doesn't, nothing is right about this. And then it gets even weirder. Because at this point now, Micah confesses that he stole this fortune from his mother. And then what we see is the mother blesses Micah. Instead of punishing Micah in any way, and actually, in just a moment, we'll look at this. I'll look at it now. Uh, she blesses Micah, but what should have happened? Is he should not have been blessed for his disobedience. Oh, no big deal. You confessed it. Yay, I'm going to bless you. God bless this man. Uh, that's weird because in the law, there's something that's supposed to happen. If you steal from someone, first of all, Leviticus uh, 6 would tell us, and you can look this up if you want to read Leviticus 6, but it basically says that if you steal, then you need to return the money with interest, so you give more back than what you stole, but then you also have to present a offering, a guilt offering, a sacrifice, through a real priest of Yahweh in the tabernacle. So when you steal, you need to not only pay back the money and interest, but you also need to make a sacrifice for that sin. None of that is happening here. None of this is expected. The mother doesn't have him do any of that. He doesn't want to do any of that. There's a complete disregard for God's law even here. And instead, his mom blesses him and says, Oh, great, I'm going to bless you. And then it gets weirder because she dedicates a portion of the money, 200 pieces of this silver, this is a lot of money, to make him idols. But not just any idols. She wants him to make idols and has idols made in the name of Yahweh. This is not the way it should be. So the mom comes and says, I'm going to bless you. And not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to take 200 pieces of silver, give it to the silversmith, made it into a carved image. And she says, I dedicate this silver to Yahweh for the hand of my son. 
she is breaking the second commandment of making a graven image, of creating an image, an idol, a false god, something to worship that is just a piece of silver. She's doing that in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Israel's God. This is incredibly crazy. To break the law blatantly and do it in the name of God. And she's doing it without any remorse. And Micah has no problem with this, of course, because he's getting 200 pieces of silver. Really, he's getting this, these idols that are going to be valuable. And so Micah and his mother here, they're just the whole thing is weird and disturbing. He is blessed for his disobedience. Instead of having to pay the price, Micah just gets actually rewarded for his disobedience. And then not only that, but his mom is breaking one of the great commandments even by creating this image but doing it in the name of Yahweh. She is trying to contain the Almighty God into a small, pathetic, fake, silver image. This is obviously something going wrong, and this is early on in the time of Judges. Joshua and the elders die, and we see Israel, and we see specifically in this family, a complete disregard for God's law, a complete disregard for God himself. And then we see the second part of chapter 17, and this is where we see more about Micah. And in the second part, we see a sham shrine. I know, it's, we don't often use the word sham like that. Uh, normally, it would be the shrine is a sham. But actually, I looked it up in the dictionary. You can call it a sham sh- shrine. It's hard to say. It's a tongue twister. But it means a fake, counterfeit shrine. And what Micah does is Micah sets up his own shrine, which if you look at what that word means as we look at the original language, is it's really a house of worship. Probably a whole building that was devoted to these idols, devoted to worship. Now, if you know Israel and you know what God has told Israel, God has said that your worship is to be done to me in the tabernacle. The place that God has said, build this in a certain way. And eventually that would become the temple. But the tabernacle, the temple, that is God's place of worship. That's where you go as a house of worship. You don't create your own shrine. And yet that's exactly what Micah has done. It says in the man, Micah had a shrine, a personal house of worship. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons to become priest. This is what we see happening. Micah makes more idols and a garment or an ephod to worship in his shrine. So not only does he create the shrine, this house of worship that is not what God has prescribed, but he brings other idols, other gods, and this ephod, which could mean an actual... Um, an ephod, what, what it was, is it was, a, it, it was a garment that would be worn by the high priests of Israel. And it would contain uh, stuff that was able to show Israel what they should do next. And so what we see here is it's either an actual something you wear or maybe it's just a portable God that you would use, kind of like a magic eight ball. It would be this God that you would have portable to carry with you or to wear on you that whenever you wanted to know what God wanted, you would just ask and somehow it would tell you what you should do. And so we see that there is this idea that Micah not only is going to be worshiping these other idols, but he's going to be looking at ways for him to know what God's will is through using these items. And so this is obviously against all that God stands for, all against his commandments to make idols, to make false gods, and he's setting up his own place of worship. And then he goes even further, and he makes his own son a priest, a representative before God. He says, son, you're going to represent me before God. 
couple of things about this. First of all, the Bible is clear. If you look back at the law, the only people who should be priests in God's house and in God's family are the, are the descendants of Aaron, uh, who was a Levite. And so only Levites descended from Aaron would be priests. Now we have no indication here whatsoever. And based on where they live, there is almost absolute certainty that he is not a Levite or a son of Aaron for that matter. And yet, Micah says, I'm going to make my son a priest. So I have a false place to worship, false gods to worship, and now a false priest to help me worship. It's really, really messed up. And we see him doing this. And then we also get this idea of his arrogance. Think about it. What gives Micah the right to ordain or set apart anyone to be a priest? Nobody. God ordains priests. Not man. And yet Micah thinks that he can do this. He can create his own Religion. He's throwing stuff into the recipe, right? It doesn't matter if I have a, a real priest that's in the real tabernacle. I can have a fake priest in a fake tabernacle and worship fake gods. And that's okay because I do it all in the name of Yahweh. I mean, that's why my mom made these idols in the first place was to honor him. So I'm just honoring him through doing all this. Do we see how messed up and weird this really is? And he's throwing things in. And in a minute, in a little while, we're going to see why. The big question about all of this is, why is all this happening? And we will get there. Chapter er, Verse 6 tells us why. I'm going to skip over that for the moment, and we'll get back to it in just a moment. But the third part, after we see that he, this, uh, this domestic dis- disturbance, this disturbing thing that happens with the mom and, and Micah, and then the sham shrine that he builds up, and now we see even a more complete story about Micah looking for a personal priest. A personal priest. Not a corporate priest, not one that God has ordained, but one that he has ordained for his own purposes. And again, a priest is a representative before God to represent and to, to really uh, be, go in between God and man. And, and we see that Micah wants a priest. Now, I don't know, and this is a little ahead of what I was going to say, but it's kind of weird because his son isn't mentioned again. And here in a minute, we're going to see that he gets a new priest. What happened to his son? I don't know. Did he die because he was a false priest? Maybe. Maybe he didn't do a good job, so his dad kicked him out and fired him. I don't really know. We don't really, or we're not told that. But we do know, no matter what happened, that Micah wants an upgrade. And so, that's where we see this next part of the story. And the next part of the story, we see a wandering Levite visits Micah. A wandering Levite visits Micah. Remember, I just told you that a priest had to be the line of Aaron and be a Levite. Now, we don't know for sure if he's in the line of Aaron here. Um, later on, his, uh, his identity may or may not be disclosed as we continue on in Judges. So there's a chance that he's not really from Aaron, but at least he's a Levite, which Levites were given the responsibility of either being priests or assisting the priests in the tabernacle. Their job was to help in the worship of God for a corporate Israel. And so that's what Levites do, but now we see this Levite visits Micah, and there's some weird things happening here that you might not get. You might just think, okay, well, this guy's just wandering around. What's wrong with that? Well, some interesting things. First of all, we see the Levite is coming from Bethlehem, who is, which is a non-Levitical city. So when the, the land was given out to Israel, the Levites didn't get a section of land. They got several cities throughout the land of Israel, and they were given those cities and little parcels of land, uh, and that was, and then they were to be supported by the tithes and offering of the pe- rest of the people of Israel. That's how God orchestrated it. 
Bethlehem is not one of those cities. So why he's living in Bethlehem and coming from Bethlehem, there's a question mark there. He's also, we're told, he's trying to find a place. He's looking for a place to live and he's looking for a job. That's what really we're looking at. He's looking for a place to live and a place to work. But God has already given the Levites both of those things. He's given them cities to live in and he's given them a job to serve in the tabernacle to help people worship God. That's the job of a Levite. So this Levite already has a place to live and a job, but apparently it's not good enough for him. And so we see him wandering around, and then he happens upon Micah's household and visits Micah. And so then they have this conversation, and Micah ends up hiring the Levite. Micah hires the Levite to be his priest. So Micah comes, and he sa- and, and Micah is there, and the priest comes, or the Levite comes, and he says, Who are you? And the Levite says, Well, I'm a Levite. Uh, doesn't give his name, just says, I'm a Levite. I kind of wonder if even the, the, the Levite knew what was happening here. He was setting himself up to be asked to be hired to be Micah's priest. But Micah sees, sees that he's a Levite. Micah is happy to have a Levite as a priest. Why? Because that's the way it should be, in a sense. Because Levites were the ones that were meant to serve in worshiping God. And so Micah sees that and says, Ooh, this is an upgrade from my son. I've got a Levite now. This is an upgrade. This is the way it should be. Again, part of the recipe might be kind of right, but he is messing everything else up in the recipe here. And so we see that he is excited about this, uh, and we're going to see why in a moment. Uh, and it's going to be self-serving, no question. And how he hires him, he pays him a good wage, gives him nice clothes, and the Levite agrees. This is not only bad on Micah, this is also bad on the Levite. The Levite agrees. He really takes a payoff to serve sinfully in a fake shrine. To serve a fake God in a fake shrine, he's taking real money. And so he's doing that because it's lucrative. And so really he sells out God for money and for clothing. As the sermon that I mentioned earlier, he gave up serving the true God for 10 shekels and a shirt. And so we see that happen for the Levite. Micah hires him. He shouldn't have. The Levite shouldn't have taken the job. He takes it anyway. And we see that serving Yahweh was all about money, not only for Micah, but also for the Levite. Just sad, sad place to be. And then we see the last part of this personal priest is that Micah ordains and loves this Levite. He ordains. Again, Micah takes things into his own hands, thinks that he has the authority to ordain. And so he ordains this Levite as his personal priest, not the way God intended it. He did not put Levites around to have everyone have their personal priest to go before God. There was a specific system that God had set up on how the priests should represent all of Israel, not just have this personal way of worshiping God. Kind of relates even back to last week what Justin was talking about, is that worship is not just about one person. It's about corporate, and he has completely and utterly walked away from that. And he's ordained again. He has set apart this Levite to be his priest, even though he has no right to do that. <clears throat> and in a minute, we're going to look at this verse that says and shows us that he thinks that the reason by doing this, Yahweh is going to bless him because he has the right kind of priest. He's done it right. He's done one thing right. Therefore, God will have to reward him. Again, using God as an end or as a means to an end. Instead of looking at God as, I want to worship God because he is the end, instead he's saying, well, I'm going to worship God kind of in a weird way with a wrong recipe so that I'll get something out of it in the end. And we see this happening in the life of Micah. But we also see it happening in the life of Levite, or the Levite. And in all of this, the Levite and Micah become like family in their pursuit of a false god and a false shrine. 
And in a minute, not in a minute, actually in a couple weeks, in a week or two, you're going to see that he loses all of it. Spoiler alert. And there's no doubt that he loses all of it because he's placed his faith in something completely counterfeit. Not Yahweh himself, but in a, a religion that he has concocted of his own recipe. We see him doing that. So what are the implications for Israel? What are the implications for us today? Well, first of all, we see in verse 6, I told you I'd get back to this. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This becomes the theme verse of Judges. This verse will be seen again. And this verse is, if you were to sum everything up in all 21 chapters of Judges, it all comes back to this phrase. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we see this happening. So why? The question is, why was Micah, his mom, the Levite, why were they doing this? Well, the first reason is they were completely unaccountable for what they did. The the Israelites were completely unaccountable. They had no king. They had no king that was meant to point them towards God, to look to Yahweh for, for guidance. They had no king that would unite them under Yahweh. They didn't have that. And they also just did whatever they wanted to do. So there was no accountability. The Israelites were unaccountable and they did whatever they wanted to do. This is what we see happening throughout the book of Judges. Israel does not listen to God's laws. They don't, he don't, they don't listen to God's ways. They don't listen to God's advice. They don't listen to anything that God says, really. They only listen to what their own heart tells them to do. What they think is right. And... As I talk about this, I can't help, and I'm assuming you can't help, but realize that this there's nothing new under the sun. This was happening way back then, and it's happening right now. What is the predominant thought of this culture is very clear. And it came out even clearly, and I know I've made fun of the Hallmark movies a lot, but watching a Hallmark movie this week, a couple of them, and it was said two times, whatever you do, don't worry about anything else, just follow your heart. But that is what the world says. It says, whatever you think is right, whatever makes you feel good, whatever is right for you, you do it. Because that's the only thing that we can really believe in. Uh, That if it's right for you, just do it. The thing is, we don't really believe that because when people do wrong things that are really wrong, we still call them wrong. When someone goes and and murders a bunch of people, nobody says, well, you know what, it was right for him. You know what? I mean, he didn't like those people. He didn't feel bad about it, so he killed a bunch of people. No big deal. He just do. He followed his heart. He was just following his heart. No big deal. And we could talk about that with anything. But yet, that is what our culture says, and it's not only what it says, but it's how it lives. And I would venture to say, even in the church, and even in our church, some of us, and I include myself in this, have done the same exact thing. That we've made decisions or gone certain directions or made or done what we're going to do because it feels right to us, so therefore I deserve it, so I'm going to do it because this is what I want. This is how I feel. This is, I'm following my heart. This is what I'm supposed to do. We're not called to follow our heart. We're, we're called to follow God's heart. And Israel doesn't get it, but I just don't know if we get it either. They've really selected and elevated their own preferences over any true commitment or true worship. If it doesn't serve me, then I won't do it. If it doesn't end up well, then I'm not going to do this for God because I want it to end up well for me. I believe that so many times we find ourselves unaccountable. 
We don't seek accountability. We don't want accountability. And therefore, we do whatever we want to do because we don't want anyone to question us. And my question is, with that is that recipe is going to end in disaster. It doesn't just stop with that. We're not only told that Israel does whatever is right in their own eyes and follows their heart, if you will. But then we see Micah specifically, what his worship was all about. Last verse of this chapter, in chapter 17, verse 13. Then Micah said, now I, have, now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh, will, will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. This verse says everything about this chapter. The mother, Micah, the Levite, all had this same thing in common. They followed God because it would prosper them. They thought that by creating a religion in which they would pay homage to God in very weird and sinful and terrible ways would be some way that somehow they could prosper. Micah's worship was motivated by selfishness and greed. Worshiping God wasn't about giving God the glory. It wasn't about giving him the glory he deserves. It was about using God to receive glory for themselves. They weren't worshiping God for who he was. They were worshiping, worshiping God for what he could do for them. Selfishness is not true worship. Well, it is. It's worshiping yourself, not worshiping God. So that leads to us. True worship is not about us. It's about God. And I don't want to miss in this what the, everything that Justin preached on last week. Worship isn't just about us. It's about God. But ultimately, it's also about others. If you did not listen to last week's message by Pastor Justin, I just, I'm going to put a plug for it. Because I was... It was amazing how the word of God came out last week to show what worship really looks like. And if you want to know what true worship is, you did not listen to that sermon, go online, find it, and listen to it. Because it plays into what we're talking about right now. So many times our worship, our time of whether it's singing, serving, uh, praying, talking, giving announcements, whatever the worship might be, if, it's, if we're not careful, it can very easily become all about us and not about God and not about others. And that's what Israel's doing. They have ignored the corporate Israel. They have also ignored uh, God completely. We see Micah, his mother, the Levite. They all have ignored what God has said. And they've said that, that worship is about them. Some of you young adults who are in our vintage ministry will remember one of the teachers we had made this comment about the church. And it said, the church is not for, or is for us. God gave it to us as a gift. The church is for us, but the church isn't about us. And, I, and that has stuck in my mind for a very long time. And as I came to this sermon, I think the same exact thing, and we can apply it to God himself. Like, God is for us, right? Because he gives us great gifts, and he is gracious and loving and wonderful. But God is not necessarily about us. Like, this life is not about us, about what we can get, how we can selfishly become happier and healthier and better, and how this life can go better for us if we just follow God. That might not be true. 
Your life might stink from this point on if you give your life to Jesus Christ if you haven't yet. That doesn't mean it's not worth it because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is God himself. He created the world. He created you. He loves you. He died on the cross. He rose again. We're going to see that today as we remember his death. And all of that is going to happen not just so that you can go to heaven because that's which is a great thing, but it's because he is worthy, because he loves, because he is the God who deserves all honor, all glory. We don't deserve any honor. We don't deserve any glory. We don't deserve anything. Israel didn't get it. They thought that worshiping was all about them. What they could get out of God. But do we live the same way? Do we serve God for who he is? And for what he deserves? Or do we serve God and and, and worship God for what we feel like he can do for us? If I will come to church enough, then God will bless me. If I can serve in the church enough, then uh, I will. my life will go better. If I can just uh, pray enough, then uh, all my sin will go away and, and life will be great. If I can just trust God more in my, in my finances, then I'm going to be rich. A lot of times that comes out whether we say it or whether we don't. Have we made our own recipe for how to live? Maybe we've taken some of what God has said and we've thrown it in the pot, but then we throw some other things in. Because you know what? We want what we want. Because we want to follow our heart. Because we want what we can get. Not, we don't look at God for who he is and what we can give to him and to others. We look at God to see what we can get from him and get from others. And it's a completely different mindset. It will change the way you live if you take time to think about the fact that worship is not about us. It's about God and others. It's about God worshiping him as we worship together. There is no such thing as a personal relationship or personal, like, religion. I'm sorry. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. Each of us does. But then, so often, that personal relationship, we use that word, it's kind of like a cliche catchphrase, but that personal relationship becomes a personal religion. That I'm just going to worship God how I want. I'm going to worship Jesus how I want. I'm going to pick and choose how exactly I'm going to follow Jesus. And that personal relationship that is very personal because Jesus loves us and loves you and loves me personally, that personal relationship quickly can descend into a personal religion that is not going to save us. It is only going to drive us further and further away from the truth, the true Jesus, the true God that we need to worship. I've already asked some of these questions, but we'll close with some questions to consider before we go to communion. My first question is for anyone here. Maybe you are sitting here today and you're in a place where you're starting to wonder, do you really know God? Do you really know God? Do you really have a relationship with God? Do you really value God? Do you really know Jesus Christ? And I want to say this to each of you who are here that are wondering about your relationship with Jesus, whether you know for sure you don't have a relationship, or maybe you're in a place where you're just kind of in that, I'm not really sure if I do or if I don't. I've said a prayer, but I don't really know if I really know Jesus. If you're there, think about it. Come to Jesus for who he is, for what he's done, for all that he is, and praise him and worship him by coming to him in faith and giving your life to him as an act of worship to him. Don't come to Jesus just because, hey, if I come to Jesus, I get to go to heaven. Jesus didn't come to this earth to be an insurance salesman. No offense to insurance salesmen. He didn't come to this earth to sell fire insurance or flood insurance. So, oh, if anything bad happens, I've got God. That's not what Jesus was about. 
He didn't come to say, come to me so that you can get heaven. He said, come to me so that you can give me glory. So that God will receive glory. Yes, heaven will be a part of that. Eternal life that starts now and goes on forever. And if you need to know anything about Jesus, is that he does offer life abundantly and everything and anything. And he just wants to just pour that on you in his grace. That doesn't always look like money, prosperity, success that the world says. But there's grace and there's peace. And there's joy that can never be equaled in Jesus Christ. But that's not ultimately even why we come to Jesus. It's not to say, Jesus, I want you to save me because I want what I want. It's we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me because I want to give you what you deserve. That is true worship. The rich young ruler, I won't take time to read it this morning. Many of you might know the story. Young man comes to Jesus and says, what good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? This guy is coming to Jesus and he's saying, I want what... I want what is there. I want eternal life. I want the best of the best. I want to get this. And, you know, Jesus could have said, oh, all you got to do is believe in me. Just say, I believe, just, just say right now. Just say, I, say I, believe, I believe in Jesus. Okay, well, you're good. No, Jesus asked him some questions. He said, have you followed the law? And the, the rich young ruler says, yeah, I've, I've followed the law really, really well. I've done everything that I should do. I'm a good person. I'm coming to a good person that is God, and I'm asking for eternal life. So give it to me. And Jesus then says one great thing at the end. He says, okay, one thing you lack, one thing that you need to do is to sell all that you have and then follow me. And this rich young man, presumably from what we can tell in scripture, walks away saying no. Because he wasn't coming to Jesus because he wanted Jesus, because he knew that Jesus was worthy of his loyalty and devotion and commitment. He was coming to Jesus because he wanted something out of him. He wanted to treat Jesus as a means to an end and not the end itself. And we see the rich young ruler does that. If you want to read more about that, it's in Mark chapter 10. It's also in Matthew. I'm not sure exactly the reference there. But you can read that and we can see that that is what God is saying to you and to me today. Don't, you, you, I'm not saying that you today that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to sell everything you have. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is you do have to give up everything to God and say, God, everything is yours. Whatever you want from me, because you deserve it, because you're worth it, I'm going to give it to you. And it's not about whether I can get something out of it. It's not about whether I can even get heaven out of it. It's about, I can. I just want you, Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross. He lived a perfect life to die on a cross for your sin and for my sin. Every time we've done something that is wrong and against what God says is right, every time we've done that, we deserve to go to hell for that sin, to be punished forever, because God can't be in the presence of sin. And yet Jesus came and died on on the cross, shed his blood, broke his body. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he did all of that so that we can be saved, but more so, more even more so, so that through the salvation of people, he would receive glory. So that we come to him, and we give our lives to him, and we have faith in him, and we believe in Jesus, and we give everything to him, and then he receives glory and honor because he's God. That's the point. And so if you're going to come to Jesus today, don't come to Jesus because you want to go to heaven. I know that's hard to say. Maybe you've heard many messages. If you want to go to heaven, believe in Jesus. And that is one of the great benefits that might come, that will come. But don't come to Jesus for your own ambition, for your own selfishness, for your own what you can get out of it. Come to Jesus for him. And if you haven't, if you haven't 
said, come to Jesus and committed yourself to him, then make today the day you do it. During our communion time, afterwards, whenever you need to do it, right now, for instance, I don't even care, get your life right with Jesus and come to him and beg him for his salvation and give him the glory that he deserves. And maybe you're here today and maybe you're one of those people who maybe when you were young, you said a prayer and you said, Jesus, I believe in you, but you know as you sit there that all that your life has been up to this point is using Jesus or using God to get you somewhere else and it's been a selfish motivation, there's, it doesn't, you're not, it's, you're not lost at this point. Just repent and come to Jesus and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jesus. This isn't about me. It's about you. And live your life like it. You'll never regret it. Got to move on. Are we living our lives looking for God's blessing over worshiping him as he is? Same idea for us who are Christians. Are we living our lives Looking for God's blessing. Like, when is God going to bless me? And if I do enough good things, if I do enough right things, if I can worship enough, be at church enough, give enough to the offering plate, whatever I can do to worship him, if I can do that enough, then he's going to help me. He's going to prosper me. If that's your mindset, then we need to repent of that. John chapter 6 is a beautiful story. You can read John chapter 6. Beautiful in the sense that it shows us some real truth. Where a bunch of people are following Jesus after he feeds them bread and fish. And then they come and they're still following him and they want more of him. And, and he says, you don't come here to believe in me. You have come here because you want more bread. And Jesus says that to the people and says, I'm not here just to give you physical bread. I'm here to give you the bread of life. I'm here to give you everything. And that's me. But the people didn't get it. And the people, when they found out they weren't going to get the bread and they weren't going to see the miracles and they weren't going to get what they wanted, what did they do? They left. They left Jesus. He wasn't good enough for them. They didn't want him. They wanted his blessings. They didn't want him. They wanted his food. But are we the same way so many times in our lives? And we can repent of that and ask God for help in that in our life. Ask for his grace to be able to worship him as he is and not just for what he can do. Then the last question I want to ask is, is our worship of God based on truth? Or is our worship of God based on our preferences? You'll know the story of John four twenty one through 24 is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And they have this little conversation and she's asking where the right place is to worship, whether it's back in Jerusalem or on the mountain that they have. And Jesus says it's not about where, it's about who. You worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what Jesus says. So in other words, don't live for worshiping on based on your preferences what we feel like, what we hope we feel like, but worship God based on his truth, what he says about himself. Worship him based on his word. Worship him based on what he says, not how we feel. And feelings will follow, but that's not how we should live and worship Jesus. So in all in all, at the end, I want to make this one statement before we go to communion. Don't make God just a means to an end. Allow him to be the end of all your means. Everything you do should glorify him. Not glorify you. I want to read from Philippians chapter 3. As I close this part of the service. But Philippians chapter 3 speaks to us of Paul's heart when he looks at what the Christian life is all about. And this passage I have clung to so many times. And I hope you have as well. In Philippians chapter 3, we see the heart of Paul, and I believe this is the heart that we all should have. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. 
Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen to this next statement. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that from which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul got it. He says, all things are nothing. All things mean nothing except to know Jesus. Verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash. The word in the Greek, as dung. He treats everything else that doesn't matter at all except for knowing Jesus. And he's willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. Are we in the same place? Are we willing to lose everything? Are we willing to completely abandon ourselves and say, God, whatever you want, not what I want, not what I can get out of you, but God, whatever you want to do with me, do it. For your glory, for your honor, for your sake. As we come to communion in just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to reflect on his death. But as we do, I don't want to just reflect and remember and say, thank you, Jesus, for bringing me to heaven. But I want us to take this time to really remember what God has done and who he is, and give him glory, and give him honor, and give him praise for what he has done through his death. I'm going to close in prayer and then move down, and uh, as I do that, if the men would come forward to serve with me. Lord, I thank you for this reminder this morning of how important it is that we give our lives completely to you for your sake and not our own. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we have this time to come to communion to remember your death, your sacrifice for us, that it wouldn't be about what selfish things we achieve or selfish things that we receive, but Lord, that it would be about who you are and and that we would give you all the glory and honor that is due to you today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.